You're an entrepreneur working on the plan for your new business. How much do you know about your customer? The common thread throughout any marketing to me is just understanding your customer. Are you marketing in the right places? Of mobile users today, more than 50% have smartphones, and yet a tiny, tiny fraction of budgets are going toward mobile marketing. So that's a gap where the consumer is way ahead of marketers. Do you change your plans on the fly? or trust your gut. I need to trust my gut a little bit more. So my natural tendency is to go get data and get lots of data and then get some more data. This is the Language of Business, a weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller. Harvard MBA, and Senior Lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode of The Language of Business, we'll look at mobile marketing, but first, really looking at your customer. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Today, we'll discuss the business plan's marketing section, and in particular, how you go about implementing your plan of attack. At the end of the industry competitive analysis section, you've identified an unmet business opportunity. Now, it's time to capitalize on that opportunity, either by creating a new base of customers or appealing to your existing clients through your innovative product or service. But how do you avoid falling prey to the famous line from Robert Burns' poem in 1785, the best laid schemes of mice and men? During implementation, are marketing metrics carefully written down and analyzed, or are they instead developed over time based on customer feedback or moves by the competition. Our first guest is Lisa Tanzer, whose resume speaks to over two decades of work either as a chief marketing officer or a marketing vice president, and within three of the last four years as a self-employed marketing and strategy consultant. Prior to attending the Harvard Business School, she also worked in a management and strategy consulting capacity. Lisa, welcome to the Language of Business. Nice to be here. So you have extensive experience in education, television, media, children's product, and the entertainment fields. With such a diverse background, how have your marketing approaches had to be changed or analyzed based on your client or customer? Yeah, you know, every client or customer I've had is completely different with regard to the marketing plan. A lot of my background has been in children's entertainment or children's products, and you would think there'd be a lot of commonalities, but I can give you a couple examples of how the marketing plans could be completely different. Okay, please do. With children's products. Get the product on television, get it online, get the kids excited about it, and then really think about the holiday season, because you're all leading up to the holiday season. So you've created some awareness, and then how do you get that translated to information over to the parent. And that's where all the in-home flyers and circulars around the holiday time come in. You're really working on retailer support in order to get presents in the home. Most of that work in preparation for the holiday season is probably done in February or March the year before. Yes, definitely. A full year ahead. That cycle does a full year ahead because you're leading up to one period of time, right, where you're trying to get the purchase. And then what you want to try to do is to reinforce with the parent right around the decision-making time, so getting much closer to like the November time, how are they planning to feel good about their purchase? So the PR happens, right, with all the toy and industry magazines, but those lead times are 
six to nine months ahead of time as well. So let's go back to your diverse background. Is there any common thread throughout all of your different marketing approaches and activities? It's really knowing what the key selling cycle would be and backing up into the plan. But that differs quite considerably on what tactics you need to get to that purchase decision. So let's talk about some of those tactics. What has worked well over the years and what honestly hasn't worked well over the years? I think, again, it's like the variety. So in this case, you can really predict a little bit about the cycle and the consumer mindset with regard to toy purchasing. The other example I was going to give you is with test preparation services, it's totally different. You couldn't employ that same tactic. You couldn't employ a television advertising campaign right. leading up to a purchase decision. That's a much longer, longer cycle time so that you're in the consumer's mindset. And you can do that not with test preparation services, but with the knowledge you have about the category and colleges and publicity. Sure. You were producing a television show. What is it like being on the other side when it comes to doing marketing this time from the production vehicle? Yes, it's very challenging, right? Because your customer is really the network and the sure. broadcaster. Right. You know, you need to get to them first. So a lot of your pre-marketing plans have to do with selling into the studios, not to your end consumer, because you're completely dependent upon them to reach your consumer. In that particular industry, is the lead time still weeks, months, or even an entire quarter away, or how does years, it differ? Years away, because you want to understand what are the needs of the broadcaster. So Disney Channel, what holes are they trying to right. fill? What's their long-term lead plan? It can take 18 to 24 months to produce the show, so you need to be understanding their needs and selling and concepts a lot earlier. I'm Greg Stoller, and my guest is Lisa Tanzer, currently a chief marketing officer. So let's go back to my original question. I really don't think there's a con- thread per se with regard to marketing tactics and strategy. I think those are all very specific. Right. The common thread throughout any marketing to me is just understanding your customer. Okay. And that might be a customer like a broadcaster sure. or a consumer like your, your end consumer. Are there any similarities, and there don't need to be, by the way, between how you go to understand that customer, whether it being using analytical data, whether it be employing different approaches to say, in this industry, we need to employ X, Y, or Z to understand our customer, but in a different industry, it might be A, B, or C. I think the basic commonality that I always have, and it's a really nitty-gritty one, right. is talk to your customers. And it doesn't have to be in a big quantitative study. Right. It doesn't have to be in formal focus group setting. Get out there and really understand your customers. And I've started things in companies where I call it coffee with the customers, bringing yep. in just a handful of customers every week so that everyone in the company is talking to them and understanding them. Now, in this age of social media, is this always in person, coffee with the customer? Have you been able to do this over Skype, over email, even? Sure. Dare say a telephone conversation? <laughs> telephone. People use the telephone. People use the telephone. That, that's um, actually a landmark. Right. They, um, absolutely. Because you don't want to just be with your local market. So we will do a lot of, you could Skype easily Skype with customers or do online surveying and that type of stuff as well. So with two decades of experience, I'm sure you've received, regardless of the industry, your share of detailed quantitative and qualitative data. From what vantage point do you study this material? It really depends on what you're using the material for and the type of business you're in. I'll give you an example. So any really staple consumer product, the data is invaluable to you because you have POS data, point of sale data on every SKU and every retailer, what you're doing. And because the business doesn't change that dramatically, 
looking back and analyzing what worked or didn't work can really drive your entire marketing plan. Are you taking the raw data and then trying to analyze it based on an answer you're trying to achieve? Or are you basically just looking at the raw data and then making strategic decisions based on it? No, taking the raw data and analyzing it. So we ran a promotion during a certain period of time. What data do we want to analyze? What's the return on investment based on what you did in the past in order to inform the future? Okay. In other industries, looking backwards doesn't help you all that much. The toy industry would would be a great example. It changes so much from year to year on what's hot and what's not that, of course, you can get some general assumptions, but if you're launching a new product, the past data, because it's so trend-related, might not be as important of a driver. Of course. Um, In online businesses, however, you can use the data almost real-time, right, if you're doing paid search or your SEO efforts, and you can adjust your marketing plan daily based on that data. Okay, so it wasn't lost on me that there's no smoking gun. There's no magic sort of common thread that's going to go across industries, etc. But is there any set of metrics which you find have consistently been applied? Again, I'll say no on consistently. Which is a good answer, by the way. (laughs) But it depends on what did you build your business plan on? What metrics did you build up your business plan and your model? So if your model was built on consumers and acquisition and conversion metrics, then clearly those are the metrics you should use for driving your marketing plan. Right, of course. Right. So it would really depend on the plan that you've put in place. Okay, so let's take a further step back. How would you then define, and I'm sure the answer is going to be ça dépend en français, it depends. Right. right. How would you define marketing success or failure? It's funny because that one doesn't depend to me. Okay, good. This is, this is good. <laughs> right. This one doesn't depend. It's pretty clear to me that it's on profitable revenue and right. brand growth. Okay. I view my success or failure. Did we make our numbers? Okay. First and foremost, but in a profitable way. But notice you're saying it from way. a revenue perspective, not necessarily from a profit, no, profitability profit, perspective. No, from a okay. numbers both ways. So revenue, revenue and brand growth, as well as profitability. Yes. Okay. And when I say the economics, it's clearly on the profit. Right. Because you can invest in marketing tactics that have a very negative return yep. on investment. That's not a success. So I'll look at all the tactics and say, which one gave me the greatest return on investment, meaning profit for the investment, right. and tweak up or down on those tactics. Okay. Okay, so we've talked about planning, Mm -hmm. we've talked about data analysis, we've talked about the success or failure quotient. How about implementation? I mean, we always hear about these very detailed marketing plans that are written as part of full-length business plans. And depending on the company or the industry, some companies will have their VP of marketing write a separate detailed marketing implementation plan. How do you come out on that debate? I think you need the detailed plans, but it just depends on the level of detail. I view the marketing part of the business plan to be your roadmap. People should understand from there what your overall budget's going to be, what kind of broad level strategy and tactics you're going after. But when it comes to implementation on any sort of promotion campaign, you need to go way down to a much deeper level. Excellent. Starting with the end question in mind, what problem am I trying to solve, et cetera? Correct. Terrific. That was Lisa Tanzer on Knowing Your Customer. Coming up, digging into data. But first, a look at mobile marketing as the language of business continues. Back to Greg Stoller. Thera Fay has two decades of marketing experience with the media services industry and was a pioneer of the digital marketing space when she launched Cara Interactive and later helped Aegis Media to build its global digital marketing network, Isobar. She's become a well-known voice on the topics of social and mobile marketing and media integration. Sarah, welcome. Thank you for having me, Greg. You've spent more than a decade as an advertising executive at Aegis, but for the past four years, your title has been free agent. What exactly do you mean by that? 
Well, free agent is the title I've given myself、uh, because I work for myself. For 16 years, I worked as an advertising executive in the same company and basically worked for them. A lot of the life choices you make are for the company you're serving versus yourself. So, as free agent, I get to do the things that I want to do and work with the people I want to work with. And I'm enjoying for these past four years a new kind of career. What sorts of companies are you working with? I'm working with about a dozen companies as either a board of director or board of advisor in the digital marketing space or in the emerging media space. There's so much innovation that's happening in advertising today to help marketers spend their budgets more efficiently or with more impact or to take advantage of the social platforms, new mobile platforms. So I'm experiencing kind of like innovation right. As it's happening with many of these companies, what sort of trends are you seeing in the advertising marketplace? The mega trend is one that's been happening over the past decade and is continuing to accelerate. Media channels are becoming more fragmented. There are more TV channels. There、sure. are more digital websites, more platforms, social media, mobile media. So the time that the consumer spends with media. Is just in lots of different places, and they're becoming harder to reach. They're almost becoming advertising avoidant.、Uh, You're talking the average consumer. The average consumer. We see more message skipping. We see more of a tuning out of message because it's just becoming overwhelming.、Uh, There's so many advertising、right. messages、sort of like、that we encounter、overload. in a day.、Right. And then we also see people actually participating in messages themselves, so getting information from other consumers versus the marketers themselves. So for marketers, the frustration is that. It's harder and harder to spend the same amount of budget with the same impact and efficiency. Have you noticed amongst the challenges you're facing any rules of thumb or techniques that have been particularly effective, even in the sort of media being awash with sensory overload, etc.? There's no particular one way to come about things, but there are a lot of. Missed opportunities right now. So I would give you mobile as an example. Of mobile users today, more than fifty percent have smartphones,、sure. and almost a third of web traffic is through mobile platforms. And yet, a tiny, tiny fraction of budgets are going toward mobile marketing or reaching people through the mobile platform. So that's a gap where the consumer is way ahead of marketers, and we're seeing advertisers race to catch up. They want to understand the mobile platform. They want to figure out how to reach people there, but they haven't done that yet, and they haven't proven yet to themselves that the mobile medium can work、But、for them. But how is that going to work? Because we get inundated with pop-up ads. Ads when we're on our computer, we get robocalls on our telephones, we get email attachments, etc. Are you suggesting that when you go to open up your telephone, you're going to see an advertisement? Right now, a lot of marketers are translating mobile advertising to a tiny little banner, just like you would see maybe on a computer screen. Only it's a fraction of that size. So、sure. they've done what they did in digital years ago, which is kind of try to translate advertising to the computer screen. Screen 
and it took a while to figure out how to make the creative exciting. But there are really big opportunities in mobile to reach consumers while they're out and about in retail and give them messages in the time and place where they're ready to make a purchase decision. Interesting. Fascinating stuff. I'm Greg Stoller, and we're talking with Sarah Fay, a marketing industry thought leader. She spends a lot of time meeting with startups in the digital marketing space, working on their boards, and in what she refers to as real-time marketing. There's a great debate out there as to whether social media success is defined as gut feel because it's so new, or the implementation of traditional pure play marketing analytics. How do you come out on that debate? Well, so real-time marketing is an exciting space, and I think that both gut feel and analytics have a role to play. So think about, okay, everyone is using the Oreo cookie example from the Super Bowl. I don't know if you saw the I, I Oreo. Know, well, yep, okay, yep. So, so Oreo runs a 30-second spot. It says, follow us on Instagram. And I don't know how many follows they got during that time. I'm, I'm sure it was Millions, you know, millions, right. right. And then during the blackout of the Super Bowl, they serve up an Instagram picture of a cookie and a glass of milk in the dark, and it says, you can still dunk in the dark. That was only something that could have been done through intuition and gut feel with just an understanding that the relevancy of the moment was going to get them attention. That said, analytics can also play a huge role in real-time marketing. I work with a company called Social Flow that tells you what your fan base or even other fan bases are talking about in the moment and allows you to tweet a message about what your fans are talking about. And that actually gets you more shares and it gets you more responses. It just makes sense. But that's amazing information to be able to take advantage of that you would never know unless you actually had the access to the analytics. So as you're sitting around the boardroom table and they're talking about corporate strategy, how much credence do today's executives really give to the marketing plan? There's sales, there's engineering, there's profitability concerns from the CFO. How does marketing stack up uh, around that board table? Lots of times, okay, I work with a lot of startups and the product comes first. And I believe the product should come first, especially in this day and age, because the product really has to work in order to gain credibility and in order to get people supporting the product. Social media has had that effect. I mean, anybody who goes to a restaurant these days is probably going to check Open Table or Yelp. If If it's not actually good, then don't bother marketing it if people aren't saying good things about it. Who you are as a company is a very important part of marketing, and marketing plays a role in that. Beyond that, I think, you know, marketing is really everything. It's what you say about yourself. It's what you want other people to say about you, what you're going to be in the future. What do you predict is going to be the single biggest change to the way marketing's done over the next three to five years? TV advertising has continued to go up, actually, but money is coming out of other forms of media and into digital. And I think also people are trying to take advantage of cross-media opportunities. So for consumers who have their attention divided between platforms to try and find ways of gaining their attention through those platforms. A really good example is when you watch The Voice, people are tweeting at the same time. And and actually, that kind 
of cross-platform interaction is making you more engaged with the show. Well, advertisers are trying to get people involved with the message. So it's really just about engaging consumers and trying to find ways of getting them to participate with brands. Thanks, Sarah. Sarah Faye, thanks for being on The Language of Business. Now we'll meet a serial entrepreneur who really digs into the data and who moonlights as a bass guitar player next on The Language of Business. Our sponsor on The Language of Business is Choose to Be Nice. It's a social movement dedicated to encouraging and inspiring kindness wherever and whenever possible. Choose to Be Nice is improving the way people interact with one another by reminding them that they have a choice about how to be in the world. And it all starts with a promise. Check it out at choosetobenice.com. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Known for an ability to work well with founders and executive teams and to provide hands-on CEO-level counseling to maximize profits and to accelerate growth, Drew Hanna is my next guest. In addition to his advisory work, Drew has also personally led three venture-backed business transformations for growth, resulting in acquisition, either as a CEO or as a vice president of sales and marketing. Drew, welcome to the Language of Business. Good to be here, Greg. So what startup are you currently running or advising? Well, I'm currently working with a company that's beyond the startup stage. We're in an expansion stage, and we provide a SaaS-based retail service for major omni-channel retailers like the people that sell cell phones and Verizon, AT&T, uh, stores of that nature. SAS stands for? Uh, software as a Service. Okay. And how do you find these opportunities, or better yet, how do they find you? Well, typically I'm working with companies that are venture-backed, and very often the venture investors believe there's more potential performance that is afforded by the market conditions. So often I get referred into these companies by the investors. Now, given your impressive track record of success in multiple industries and over multiple time frames, is there a template that you use or a formula when navigating a company from its introductory to its growth trajectory, or is it really that individualized? Well, you know, I don't think there's a formula involved here, but there, uh, I've observed there are a lot of similarities, regardless of the industry, that have more to do with the stage of growth that the company is at. So you might be looking at a company at the very early stage where they haven't actually proven out the business model. And I think the popular term is pivots. A management team may go through a number of pivots at that stage to lock in on a business model. The next set of steps really, though, are about getting on a rail and scaling that business through repeatable processes, being clear about who the target customer is and what the unmet need is, and then having the programs that support that mission. So today's episode is focused on marketing plan implementation, and sometimes marketing metrics, while carefully developed and analyzed, have to be changed based on moves by the feedback or the competition. How do you sort of come out on that debate, et cetera? I think it's very important to pay attention to the numbers and to pay attention to what the marketplace is telling you. One of the most effective things I've observed and I've used as a tool is to conduct an in-depth win-loss analysis and really examine closely what are the commonalities and the differences between the companies that bought the product and the companies that chose not to buy the product. And what are you analyzing for the win and what are you analyzing for the loss? Well, you really want to understand what the unique capabilities of the product are that are appealing to the customer. And in the case of, of the losses, you want to understand why the sales organization might be spending time on deals where it isn't a fit 
or perhaps there's communication issues or things of that nature. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So many executives today are focused on measurable goals versus marketing objectives. What's the difference and how do you overlay that into your win-loss grid that you just mentioned a few moments ago? Well, measurable goals are key and it's basically just like what we learned back in grade school, the scientific method. You start with a an hypothesis and then you test it in the marketplace and in this case the hypothesis we're testing is our business model our business plan our value proposition sure so you want to be gathering that data and you want to constantly be adjusting based on that those are the objectives what about the goals well the goals can be more broad than that and it might have to do with the progress in entering a new market It might have to do with existing markets and the ability to expand there. And I think it's really important to understand from the point of view of where you intend to have growth, is it because you're selling additional things, new features to existing customers, or are we taking our product into new markets? And understanding the differences between those situations and the level of risk. Is your value add to whoever you're advising, et cetera? Well, it's really important for the team to understand those things. Terrific. I'm Greg Stoller, and we're talking with Drew Hanna, who is both an entrepreneur and an advisor to startups. So on top of all of this, how do you find time to perform as a guitarist? (laughs) Well, that's a great question. It's a hobby, and honestly, I don't find as much time as I'd like to find uh, to be doing that. But I think in any business, if you're going to perform at your best, you have to take care of yourself. And having good outside interests and having a balanced life, I think that's really important. Something I've found, Drew, that has always fascinated me is CEOs, startups, presidents, if you will, often have a number of close confidants, one or two people who they turn to both in good times and bad to say, could you give me some advice or let me bounce something off of you? Rarely is the vice president of marketing one of those confidants. What do you think is the reason for that? And in spite of this, how have you managed to be so successful in your advisory work? Well, I think what's uh, worked well for me is the fact that I can appreciate the issues that the CEO and the leadership team are facing pretty much at the executive and board level. Having operated at that level myself, I can bring that perspective to the dialogue. And at that level, typically the CEO doesn't may talk to a board member, may talk to an investor, but they have an agenda. And in my working relationship with my clients, I'm there to support them, and that's my agenda. What do you think has been your biggest success and your biggest failure so far? I think my biggest success really has been maybe outside of business and successfully raising three children and being married for 33 years. In business, I had a terrific win with a company called SoftBridge, which we grew very rapidly and was acquired by Teradyne. But actually, I learned more from the outcome of a guitar business that I was running that did not produce a high return for the investors. And uh, sometimes those uh, battle scars are where you learn more. So in the last few years of a startup, are you trying to grab an increasingly larger share of the existing pie, or are you simply trying to increase the size of the pie itself? That question really depends on the market situation. The whole issue that a company is balancing at that stage is really about focus. And is there a way to get to your growth goals more quickly by staying focused on the path that you're on or by identifying adjacent market categories? And it's a matter of balancing the risk and reward of taking those kinds of chances. How do you think you integrate best with other departments? Is it always marketing first, the other departments are supporting marketing, or is it often the antithesis? 
Well, I think the role of marketing really is to understand the needs of the customer and make sure that everybody in the company understands that story, that mission. And I think to the extent that the entire team can be clear about that, everybody will be marching in the same direction. And do you tend to rely more on gut feel or the results or the review of hard-based analytical studies, etc.? I'm very much a numbers guy. And one of the things that I've recognized as I've gone through more years of experience is I need to trust my gut a little bit more. So my natural tendency is to go get data and get lots of data and then get some more data. So I'm learning to trust my gut. I think there's a balance there. Thank you, Joe. You're welcome. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. We now have downloads in 55 countries. The latest is Tunisia. Welcome aboard and thanks for the support. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Social media for the language of business is by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.